Welcome to Open Swim. You're here with your hosts, Hallie Ram Kogelschatz, Eric Kogelschatz, Brian Andrew Jasinski, Alex Knight, Tyler Shaw. Tyler is our newest member here at Shark of Minnow, and this is his first day on the podcast. So, Tyler, can you uh, tell the audience at home a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm the designer here at Shark and Minnow. I've been here for about two months. I, I went to Kent State. I'm from Warren, Ohio, and uh, my interests are art, illustration, uh, good music. I love movies. Just, just the normal stuff. The normal stuff. The normal stuff. <laughs> and he just happens to be like a blow your mind awesome designer. So we're really happy to have him Thank here. Thank you. Appreciate that. So we've been talking a lot recently about some developments in the world of media and it's brought us back around to a podcast that we did a little while ago about the golden age of television and Alex has been doing a little bit of thinking about what's happening in that environment you know what that next chapter looks like can you tell us a little bit about what you've been uh, kind of rolling around in your mind so my question for you guys at the table and for our audience listening at home is what is the biggest challenge for media companies like Hulu, Netflix, and HBO right now? No more Breaking Bad? It's a good guess. David Lynch can't create Twin Peaks episodes forever? <laughs> it's a fair point. Remembering your password. Another fair point. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alex, tell us what you found out. The biggest challenge for these companies is, drum roll please, is to get young people, millennials, to pay for their streaming services. These companies are trying to figure out basically how to get millennials, so people my age, to pay for video content. A big problem they're facing is that young people are, are sharing their passwords more or not sign up for the service by themselves. They're basically freeloading off of their parents or a relative or another friend. I am a good example of this. I use my mom's Netflix, my dad's HBO, and I have a friend's Hulu account. And according to this Forbes article I found, it says that... 35% of all young consumers share their passwords, which is well above the 19% of Gen X and 13% of baby boomers who also do the same thing. The research also says that post-millennials age 21 and younger share their passwords at an alarming rate of 42%. And is this, Alex, do you happen to know, is this just passwords for streaming services or is this a general attitude toward any password-protected site? I think it's just for video streaming services. Um, but I, I think it's funny, though, because most people use their email, right, as their, as their username and then their password, probably the same one for all channels as much as they can. So you could easily break into anyone's I account. Know, like That's just, what I'm like me super paranoid about. Yeah. And like, in fairness, we have relatives, cough, cough, hint, hint, mom and dad, that totally <laughs> use our streaming services and have our passwords. I mean, not that I think that any of our relatives would do anything, but like, you know, we do share those passwords as much as I might say it makes me nervous, you know? So is this like a changing of attitudes? Is that That's part of what I'm wondering. Like, are people just more laissez-faire about um, data online? And it's pretty evident. I mean, just in my own personal experience like I said I um, I've shared my Amazon Prime membership that I pay for and I obviously use my parents um, Netflix and HBO so that's very nice thanks mom and dad I think this is really reminiscent of the time when Napster was around and people were going on and downloading free songs and then the government started going after people and you heard all these stories there was a Pepsi campaign about it remember the kids that got caught for stealing songs on Napster and everyone started to get so concerned about using Napster because they thought they were going to get caught. And eventually that made way 
for the lawsuits and then the creation of new channels, Pandora, Spotify, which is Napster. It's just the new version of it. And people had to start paying for it. And then all of a sudden, that was a shift in consumer behavior. They weren't concerned with owning physical things, but instead the intangible. I wonder if the same thing's going to happen here. We're so For so long, we've been sharing, but will there be something, government influence, where people will start to actually have to pay for these services? I feel like there was like a heightened paranoia around getting nabbed for, for sharing passwords about a year or a year and a half ago. There, you know, there was some talk about the government cracking down, and that seemed to have like dissipated. I also wonder, a lot of these services like Netflix... They, they allow you to stream on it up to three devices. So it's not technically, as I see it, illegal to share your password up to three devices. And those three devices could be three separate households, but they don't really define like how you can use that. So I don't know. I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Alex, you know, as you see it, like what is the biggest challenge for these companies? You know, how are they how are they going to be able to take this and still have a viable business model? These services are companies and they do have that kind of pressure to perform well financially. And people sharing their passwords is lost revenue. Their challenge is getting someone to pay for something that they have gotten for free. And that is a challenge that any business would have, but especially these media companies at this time where people are so prone to, like you said, being laissez-faire and just sharing their passwords. So let's open it up to the group. You know, what do you think would get you to pay for a service that you're not paying for right now? It brings like a a larger conversation of like, what is the value um, attached to like the perception of a service like this? And for, for companies like Hulu, Netflix, and HBO, I think that technology, it kind of integrates like this, this thought that uh, because creativity, technology, and art is so accessible, it's not valuable. I think there's almost a disregard for the sense that you're using these services for free. And, you know, it's been introduced, the, there's been the idea introduced that there could be commercials on such streaming services such as Netflix or Hulu, and people are all up in arms on that. And I guess at the end of the day, it comes down to this something has to pay for something you know the these shows aren't producing themselves for free and i think that's a disregard is the word i was looking for that people are truly have like oh it's free and i want all these you know as we were saying this is a continuation of the golden age of television is incredible these incredible shows with you know vast production and and the, and the quality of the programming is more than we've ever seen yet people are are blinking an eye when they might have to watch a commercial for 25 seconds. Um, Whereas, you know, we're coming out of an era where, you know, there are blocks of, there still are blocks of commercials on network TV, but in this age of streaming and and DVRing, you know, we're we're fast forwarding over everything. Um, So I think it really comes, like I said, to, uh, you know, people need to realize that something needs to be paying for what the service is providing. Uh, I do feel like it's going to come down to a lockdown of passwords. Um, you know, Hallie, as you were saying, I don't know if it's limiting the household, if they're, you know, the number of devices or if everything has to have its own password. I, I would imagine that would put a, definitely be a firewall that would block the, the spread of, of sharing a password. But I, I do, you know, it does seem this article touches on the fact that they're bleeding <laughs> in a sense and there needs to be a tourniquet. I think Tyler hit it right on, though, as far as like what, what the core of this issue is, is the value of the art. Because 
we recently completed a feasibility study for a nonprofit client, and we interviewed um, art organizations across Northeast Ohio. And, and what most of them said was that the summer is a difficult time for them because there are so many different venues where you can go to experience live art for free. But the rest of the year, you have to pay. So in the summer, these venues are having a hard time because you can go to any festival, see live dance, live music, you name it, and you don't have to pay for it. So there's this perception, and we are conditioning people to believe that art is free. Obviously, this is a different channel, avenue altogether, but this behavioral shift in sharing passwords is conditioning everyone to feel that, hey, I have the right to this. It's, it's free. And it's interesting because, you know, a few weeks ago, there was the whole story about MoviePass. I don't know if you guys have been following this, but essentially, like, you know, MoviePass was, you know, a subscription-based service that allowed you to see as many movies as you wanted to over the course of the month. And now there are legal reasons why they're having to crack down on a number of movies, types of movies, um, which movies qualify to be a part of the pass. And people are up in arms about this. And um, to be honest, I'm just surprised that they were able to make that model work for as long as they did. It always baffled me. Yeah. I didn't get it. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing it's, for it's people that classic, took advantage. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Probably is. is. <laughs> and so, but again, you know, I think, you know, I, I think what Tyler said about the value of art and, and er, as Eric was saying as well about art, arts over the summer, uh, you know, it's the same thing, right? It's like you, you get more for free. It makes it harder for you to justify the value. Um, you know, I think another similar example is, you know, a lot of clients will have us, you know, consult or assist them on event marketing strategies. And there's a lot of conversation about, well, what happens when you give away tickets for free and, you know, how many people are actually going to take advantage of those tickets and how do they value them if they're free rather than just charging a nominal fee. There are a lot of instances where, yeah, I mean, a free model can work. I mean, we just ran an event that was completely free and it was very successful, but it doesn't work for every organization because a lot of times, you know, people nab those tickets early and then just don't activate on them. So, you know, the value of free, right, and what you're getting for that and and if that is something valuable, I do think that um, it changes your perception on, on what you're getting. Um, I also think, you know, and Tyler, I'm curious if you're on your um, thoughts about this since you brought up the topic, but, you know, back, you know, when there were all the issues with Napster, I know the band Metallica was really vocal about the fact that they weren't getting their royalties off the music. Um, You know, now with streaming services, there are certain artists that just refuse to put their music on certain streaming services because they can't make money off of it. And, you know, it doesn't allow them to, you know, frankly, earn a living, make more art, um, you know, and, and put more music out there. You know, what are your thoughts about, you know, the best way to support artists? I'm seeing a lot of artists do touring and merch as their primary sources of income. Um, There was an article recently on Business Insider. Uh, John Lynch, he kind of wrote this article and it basically got to the point of musicians only got 12 percent of the 43 billion dollars the music industry generated in 2017. Um, And most of that came from touring. So it's Mm -hmm. like only 12 percent of the total profit um, musicians are able to kind of pick up and I mean we're looking at this from the perspective of okay this is an issue for Hulu Netflix and HBO but they're still at the end of the day uh, making the most money absolutely you know so you know if they you know presumably if they get a bigger kind of piece of the pie if they're making more revenue then if percentages increase um, 
you know, proportionately, then artists are still making more money, but it's still such a small part of the overall revenue. Right, right. And then to to that point, like, you look at a movie, you go see a Marvel movie, and they spend $10 million on the production. And then I think that that perception or that value of, like, oh, man, I have to pay $15 to go see it. But when you realize you're getting access to a a project that is worth $10 million, it kind of changes how you're looking at what you're getting. Well, Mm -hmm. and watch the ending credits. Look at those thousands and thousands of names. Right. Yeah whose paycheck is depending on that movie. Well, and similarly, it's like, okay, so right now, think about HBO. They're about to air their last season of Game of Thrones, right? That that show, I can't remember what the stat was, but I know it's over a million dollars an episode just to produce that show. So, you know, looking at it from the consumer perspective, if you're paying for streaming HBO right now and you're a Game of Thrones fan, you're really feeling like you're getting your money out of that. That's because, a deal. you know, that is a deal. <laughs> but once that show goes off the air, you know, it's not just about... Um, whether you like or do not like the other shows that are available, they're not produced at as high of a level. So are you getting your money's worth? So I think there's just a lot there in terms of, you know, value, um, perceived value, and then who's making the money at the end of the day. Like the cycle or the, the model is just shifting so much in so many different directions that I think it's not difficult to see why consumers are having a hard time reconciling, like, what am I really getting, and is it worth the money? There was, like, an interesting tidbit. Um, Travis Scott, he's a he's a rapper. He recently put out his album, and he's number one right now in the U.S. But the problem comes in because there's other artists complaining, like, how did he get this number one spot? He's using all these marketing tactics that don't follow the traditional route. And so what he did is... His girlfriend is Kylie Jenner. And so she tweeted out or did an Instagram photo where she says, um, come see me and the new baby at this concert. And so, you know, artists are getting upset because she's using her platform to sell his his albums. But when you put it in perspective, it's like the internet and the way things are right now, it's like the Wild West. There is no, there's no formula or strategy that anyone has to stick to to make money. Absolutely. I mean, we've been doing some influencer marketing over the last year on behalf of a client, and it's fascinating to see what works for awareness and the wide range of pricing that these influencers are charging for things like a single post. Um, There is no normal. And, you know, and and there are a lot of companies out there that try and quantify the value of a single post and how much you should be paying these influencers, whether they're celebrities or at different tiers or whatnot. But I think it's really unclear outside of that celebrity realm. Like, what are you really getting for your money? Right. So it's a, again, I agree with you completely. It is totally the wild west and there are so many moving parts. And on the marketing side of things, you know, trying to use, yes, data from the platforms themselves to, to track effectiveness but trying to quantify that through data and findings um, in, in other, that come from other sources, you know, whether you have like third party data or whatnot, just to say like, this is effective or it's not. I think it's really dangerous to just look at the data that these platforms themselves are putting out or saying like, oh yeah, it's totally worth, you know, spending, you know, $5,000 on this influencer marketing, you know, program with the single influencer, because look at how many followers they have. But Like I always say, how many of those followers are actually real? (laughs) (laughs) I do think about going back to Brian's point with lockdown of passwords. It reminds me of 
YouTube TV. So I, I recently set it up for my my dad. And before we signed him up, I wanted to try it. So I used our login for YouTube TV for him, but it's based on zip code and he lives in a different state. So it only pulled TV stations from um, our hometown versus where he lived in Michigan. So he wasn't able to experience exactly the way he wanted, but I do think that's a way that you can restrict this by IP address, Mm. zip code, as Brian mentioned, number of devices, which is the most common thing that you're seeing right now. But here's the thing. So when when Alex started, you know, talking about this the other day, Eric and Brian and I being the sort of more senior members of the team brought up was the fact that, you know, back even as recently as, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the decision was not to stream or to subscribe. The decision was which cable provider are you going to be going with if you're going to want to gain access to this, you know, quote unquote premium content are you going to subscribe to Time Warner? Are you going to subscribe to Dish? Like what, you know, now what's happening is, or I would say over the last five years, it's, you know, the conversation around, are you going to cut your cable? You know, are you going to go to complete, you know, streaming services? And now it kind of feels like we're moving into this new era where you're actually going to have a scenario that kind of mimics what had been going on with cable television, where you know, the streaming services are competing against one another. You know, YouTube TV probably being the one that most closely mirrors what you used to get with a cable TV package. But they're all going to be just, you know, competing against each other. And by the time you you get done subscribing to each of these individual services or shows, it actually may have been more cost effective to just have a cable package. So are we coming full circle on this? It was sold to us as like a democracy, but it's really just a new plateau. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Completely. And does that mean that cable is not dead? Is this going to be a a service that people are going to start to loop back around on because of not just cost, but ease? You know, it's tough. I mean, we we talked about passwords. It's tough, right? Like the struggle is real. You got to remember your passwords to all (laughs) these different, you know, logins and um, you know, you're this one, you know, I'm only subscribing to Showtime because I want to watch Twin Peaks, but then when it's over, I've got to cancel it. And then I, I want to watch Game of Thrones. So then I've got to get my HBO subscription back up and running. Like it's a lot to manage, you know, and that sounds really, really <laughs> like awful. It's like, yeah, it's like first world, first world problems. Right. But, um, but like, that's the thing, like, is it just easier to, you know, go back to cable or what we did for a really long time, which is have a digital antenna and just like, you know, purchase shows a la carte. Um, but like, you know, not have full streaming services. I think that's um, that's going to be interesting to see how behaviors change in light of how closely these streaming services are now starting to mirror cable. I also think about the implications of marketing because we're sharing profiles. That means the data is dirty. So no longer will advertisers really understand who's watching shows and how to advertise to them. So from our perspective, working with brands, sharing is making our jobs much more easier because we can't target the people that we specifically want to reach. Also, the creators won't know exactly who's watching. It is not clear to the creator or the advertiser who's watching their content. So this goes back to what I said on our last episode, which is if you really want to know who you're reaching, definitively know who you're reaching, it's important to have 
it's important to consider direct tactics. So, you know, putting something in their hands, you know, and not diminishing the impact of divergent direct tactics or traditional direct tactics such as direct mail, you know, and that's why it's so important to have a mix um, and making sure that, you know, you're, you're not just, you know, looking for, um, you know, a digital ad to be the silver bullet, so to speak. So just to go back to what Brian was talking about with the lockdown of passwords, a good example of this that I think applies is for anyone who has used the Spectrum TV app or has it now, um, you can download it and you put in your account information and you can watch TV right on the app, like live TV. They only allow you to do it through your home Wi-Fi. So if you're walking around and you're using data or if you're on someone else's um, Wi-Fi network, you can't access all the channels or you can't use it at all. And so I'm curious, maybe Netflix or HBO could start doing that. When we first moved into the office, we had Time Warner and they gave us one free community Wi-Fi hotspot. And I didn't really understand the value of it at first, but this is exactly the value in that people can be sitting outside of our office watching a TV show, connect to our Mm -hmm. Time Warner, and that shows them that they have the connection so they can watch it. That's kind of the new frontier is having these Wi-Fi signals in as many places as possible so that people are using your internet and then you're controlling the bandwidth so that they can watch these shows. I do think that's another way to really lock down these passwords. So I think we've outlined a lot of the challenges, but I don't know that we've really figured out m- many of the solutions. Alex, what do you, what do you, like, you're, you're the one who spent the most time with this over the last week. You know, like, what is your thought on how we fix this or how the, the streaming services fix this moving forward and, and attract more people to their individual platforms? I think the main answer is the quality of the content that these media companies are producing. We're seeing now that media companies like Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon are no longer syndicators of content. They're creating content themselves. They're now producing content that is of a higher quality than what they have syndicated in the past. So Netflix, a good example would be House of Cards and Stranger Things. And Amazon is doing their own series where they do documentaries on different sports teams. There's been news a few weeks ago that they sign a deal to create their own Lord of the Rings series. That's, I think, for five seasons, and it's like the most expensive deal ever in terms of that. And How excited are you about that deal? Oh, my God, I'm <laughs> so freaking excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, and let's, let us not forget my beloved Twin Peaks. I, I promise say, this, this is, is the no last time. <laughs> this is the last time I will bring it up on the podcast today. I think it's an interesting example because if you take a look at what that did for Showtime last year, the numbers are there and you know there's a lot of conversation about is showtime going to try and get david lynch to produce another season of twin peaks and there are a whole host of reasons why he probably wouldn't do that but they might want him to and i'm sure they're having conversations behind the scenes because in calendar year 2017 when the show aired um, between february and the end of the year because of twin peaks it's largely attributed to twin peaks um, subscribers of the you know, streaming service rose by 1 million, 3 million mm. to 4 million in that calendar year. They also directly attribute viewership at an increased rate of 11% while the show is on air. And they said it was the largest weekend when debuted on Showtime. They said it was the largest weekend in terms of individual subscriber signups that they had ever had for the service. So I think that it's a good example that shows if you're producing content that people want, 
um, and that they're, you know, especially if you can activate a fan base like that around, I mean, obviously in this case, it's around kind of a cult television show that aired 30 years ago that people are just dying to see more of. That's the kind of secret sauce, right? It's what people want and you're giving it to them in a way that they can, you know, gain access to it quickly in the comfort of their own homes. So, um, so I, th- I do think you're right there. And I think that when, when you look at that as, as an example, it's no uh, question uh, why other channels are trying to do the same thing. So what you're saying is that Showtime gained a million subscribers because of Twin Peaks. You know, in articles that I've read, that's the way they make it sound. They can't directly correlate all of those signups to that show. But that was the in terms of what they what they changed that year. Their lineup was the number one change. And that show in terms of when the signups were happening seemed to be the greatest driver. So not all a million of those subscribers subscribe because of Twin Peaks, but according to the articles I've read, you know, CBS, who's the parent company of Showtime, came out and, and had said, you know, we believe that this was a major driver in, in allowing that to happen because not too much else associated with their model or their lineup had changed. So that to me means that people are willing to pay for good quality content. Correct. I think that's a fair... To wrap. A fair extrapolation. Pay up, millennials. <laughs> <laughs> with these streaming services, you know, with the sharing of passwords, one thing we talked about is that it's really convoluting the data because you may have, you know, multiple different demographics using the same password. And the quality of the data makes it more challenging to know who you're targeting, and that could impact content. It could also impact any advertising or advertorial that might be a part of you know how the platform functions or their revenue models or whatnot so on the advertiser side of things you know there are a lot of different aspects of sort of the data landscape that are changing and Facebook came out with some announcements recently around targeting so Eric you want to talk a little bit about that ever since the presidential election and the Facebook live killer Facebook has made the statement that they are committed to improving their platform for their users And then most recently, they came out with a statement about keeping advertising safe and civil. And it reinforced that message of commitment to improving their platform, but really focusing the idea of discrimination. To kick that off, they focused on removing targeting options. So they removed over 5,000 options to prevent misuse. And this really focuses on the idea of ethnicity or religion. And how that would be applied, for example, is in the past, people could exclude certain audiences for different ads like housing or political ads and exclude certain demographics from those ads. So it is a form of discrimination in that advertising communication. So now Facebook is saying that's inappropriate and we're not gonna allow you to do that. They are launching a compliance education platform so that advertisers can earn certificates of completion for the compliance with these discrimination policies so that they can actually continue advertising on Facebook. So it will be required of all advertisers, especially those involved in things like housing or political, um, so that they don't use these parameters in a negative way. After reading this statement from Facebook, our belief here at Shark Minnow was that this is a great improvement for their platform, and mainly because there are people out there that are using the platform in a deceptive way, which when you think about what advertising is, it's really for information and persuasion. And instead they were using it to control the outcome for deceptive 
causes or reasons or initiatives that they had. So this focus will allow Facebook to improve that platform. We are curious what this means for the future as they move forward with these enhancements and modifications to their platform. But we'll stay tuned because right now there there isn't a lot of information that they've shared with us besides that quantity of 5,000 targeting options. So we'll make sure we report that in the, in the near future. And obviously it's something that we want to stay close to because we're always using it for different methods of marketing for our clients that have positive intentions for marketing and making sure that people are informed about branded products, services, or experiences. So I'm just curious, what do you guys think about that recent announcement? So Alex, as somebody who very actively uses the Facebook tool and these targeting techniques in content that we are you know, putting out there on behalf of our clients, what do you see as some of the pros of these new limitations? And then what are some of the negatives that you feel will hinder your, your job in, in terms of getting that message out to the audiences that you're seeking? It's definitely a, a two-sided coin. Um, here's an example. So say we are posting a Facebook ad for a company and they are hiring for a new employee. And that employee is, or <clears throat> they're hiring a, for a new employee. And that position is an entry-level job. Facebook allows you to target by age. So generally, uh, an entry-level job would be someone younger, probably 22, 23, 24, 25, young 20s. You can accurately target that age group and make sure that your ad is in front of the right age for that job. However, there's the question of ageism because you're excluding people who are older and who might be there could just be, as qualified as absolutely, and there could be different else. situations. It could be somebody who's trying to get back into the job market. It could be somebody who's you know, you know, changing their professions. You know, so suddenly they're excluded. You know, what this all brings to mind to me too is I think, you know, for decades, you know, there probably has been that quote unquote ageism when you're looking for a particular position. I think with social media and in this digital age that we're in, we have to be much more conscious of that those preconceived notions that we're looking for because we're suddenly literally checking a box you know whereas before it was you know nebulous it was in your brain it was just your opinion but now you are making a conscious decision to include or exclude a particular person a particular group of people particular uh, you know be it their their income level or, or their even their appearance, you know, in this digital age, we can Google somebody and see who they are and what they look like. And it, there's so much more built into notions of, of a person with all these tools that we have. Definitely. These Facebook changes are going to really make us have to balance marketing and targeting with ethics, our morals, and the law. Exactly. So I think that will present a brand new scope of challenges for not only us, but for every marketer out there. And that's what's so disappointing is that these new guidelines are really targeted to people with poor intentions. That are misusing the tools. Exactly. So for those that were using it in the proper way, it will limit their potential to get the, their message out there. For example, we were talking about earlier, if there's a new mosque in a neighborhood, if they want to reach people so that they can come to that mosque, they're not going to be able to do that. 
at least as far as we understand right now, based on what Facebook has given us. But, you know, there are some limitations due to these new guidelines. But I think everyone will get used to it. We'll all find a way to work within it. And the most important thing is that we are all governed by the same rules and we all follow them. And those people with the ill intentions will not be able to. Well, they won't be able to do things that are potentially harmful to any group of people. What's interesting to me is the fact that at the end of the day, whenever something kind of creates like a roadblock, um, there's now a sizable opportunity for some type of entrepreneur to come in and say, hey, there's been this problem that's been created that took away this access for this group of people who were kind of, as you said, following the rules. And now they can come in and, and create some new software um, or a plugin or something like that. And so from an like, entrepreneurial standpoint, there's now an opportunity on the table for someone to come in and say, hey, um, that's true. I'm going to capitalize on this. Or for, you know, marketing agencies or marketers in general to get more innovative in their use of the platform. Mm -hmm. So instead of just blindly targeting people, you know, according to criteria that they offer up in the platform, maybe it's being more genuine about how you're attracting them to your message. Right, right. Really good point, Tyler, because I think about um, Google AdWords with the nonprofit um, grants. Does Facebook introduce something there so that churches, synagogues, mosques and actually use the platform in a way that they would like without some of the limitations if they've proven um, that they are a nonprofit, etc., house of worship. So that's just one example, obviously. But I think as you think about these other audiences that no longer have the power of this tool, maybe there's something new that can be created. Definitely. Facebook is not the end all be all. That's, that's right. right. That's and you right. know what? I it's think that's that's really you know what's starting to come to light is you know I, I you know obviously I think all of us have read articles over the last you know, a couple of years, you know, in a more concentrated w way around like the death of digital or our love affair of digital is kind of ending. And I don't think that it's going away by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that the novelty of it right. is now gone. I, I don't even want to say it's, it's going to dissipate. It is gone. You know, digital has been around, you know, in, in an ever present way in our lives um, over the last 15 years. And, uh, you know, I, I would say for most people, um, you know, depending on your, you know, use of things like smartphones and whatnot, obviously you're more inundated with it. But I think now that it's more the norm, you know, becoming clear that it's a part of, you know, a communications mix and not, you know, again, the sole place to put your message, you know, that you've got to really be strategic around how you're reaching your audience. And it sounds like an obvious thing to say, but I think that from conversations that you have with clients, you know, there are still a lot of people out there that are so heavily focused on digital and it is so important to make sure that you're thinking about where your audience is and how they want to be communicated with. Short format advertising is nothing new, but I think there's a sort of a, a re-energized conversation around the effectiveness of short format ads in social. And I'm curious to know what you guys think um, about six second ads, pre-roll, YouTube, or you know, just short format content on social. I think it's a timely question because it has came up a lot in industry pubs recently, focusing on the idea of that duration or the time length of these spots. And to Hallie's point, it's really this idea of the six second ad. And 
Are you able to communicate what you want within that time frame? This is a very timely topic as many industry pubs have been talking about the idea of these shorter length ads, specifically the six second ad. And some of our peers have made their points in these articles and they all tend to focus on this idea that they don't work in isolation. And as I read that, I just can't believe that they would even think about these ads in isolation. For one, nothing works in isolation. It needs to be a concerted effort, especially when you think about the customer, they live in a multi-channel and omni-channel experience. So you have to have multiple touch points in order for it to be effective. So I think you need to really focus on the effectiveness and think about it in each of those segments, second by second, and breaking it down. And I know this is something Alex has seen a lot with some of our paid and organic ads in social. So we have tested different video ads for clients and ranging from different lengths of a couple of minutes to 30 seconds to 10 seconds. And even like Eric was talking about, the six second pre-roll YouTube ads. Okay. And from what I've seen, the average length of a video watched is about eight to 10 seconds long. And so that brings into the question of the quality of the content and what we're actually putting out there is six seconds, not long enough. It's, it's, it's interesting because it seems like 10 seconds is kind of a sweet spot of where people have learned enough information and they click the video or, and to learn more, or they just keep scrolling. Some reading that I've done, says that you really have the first three seconds of a video ad to make an impression. And that's when people are going to make their decision if they're going to keep watching or not. So between the first three seconds and the 10 seconds of where people will drop off and move on, there's really seven seconds to make that great impression from an advertiser's point of view. In that seven seconds, people are probably going to decide if they're going to click on it and continue to read more or to learn more, to keep watching another longer video, to experience a company's website, etc. And this goes back to Eric's initial point is six second ads or 10 second ads or 30 second ads, or even a five minute video on YouTube. It's not going to be effective by itself. There has to be more to back it up and more content for people to engage with, to truly build that relationship and lead people to ultimately making a sale. More than anything, we have to kind of keep in mind that consumers are smarter than ever. Um, and so I don't necessarily believe that it's just based on our conditioning to the fact that we're um, kind of predisposed to this mindset where we just consume information a lot quicker. But I think it's more so that we've been we've been conditioned to commercials, so we know when we're being sold. And so um, there's a there's a, a marketing guru. His name is Jeffrey Gitmer, and he says uh, people hate to be sold, but they love to buy. So if I if I see a video and I know this guy he's jumping on the video he says just give me three minutes of your time like I know he's about to sell me something so I'm I'm clicking skip ad um, but I, I do think like the six second format is cool because I mean a whole platform was built off of it Vine I don't know if you remember it, Vine. oh yeah yeah so you know people who have created their whole careers off of being able to create content on on six seconds. And being able to effectively share that on Twitter and different social platforms and stuff like that, I think six seconds is 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 perfect. And what it comes down to is, are you creative enough to kind of capture that space to get your message across? Because, you know, there's short films. If you if you watch short films, 
Um, if you go on Vimeo and you watch a short film, you can watch a, a, a video that's two minutes, three minutes long, and they can create a whole narrative um, for you and, and really create and set a scenery. So And so it kind of forces you to work within those parameters. And if you're able to do that and know, know the timing that you have, um, you can you can effectively market, but your message has to be that um, it's engaging the people, and you can't just sell them in that six seconds. So to go off that, yeah, I think that six second ads in general are difficult to produce because you're trying to you know convey a message or, or make a point in such a short amount of time. But it gives creative people such a great opportunity, like you're saying, to make something really really good and quality in such a short amount of time. So just another opportunity for people to portray a message. And it seems like humor has kind of been the primary go-to for that six seconds because Mm -hmm. to get a message across, you might not be able to sell somebody on that. But in in six seconds, if I can make you laugh or smile, then I can pull you in, get you through the funnel of my sales or whatever it is, get you to follow me um, or subscribe to my channel. Definitely. Yeah, I think as we think about the guidelines for it, a six second ad or even a 10 second video like Alex is talking about. We have to think about building it specifically for a customer mind. So that goes to Tyler's point about whether it's humor or entertainment, what do they want? What's their need? And then building for the context, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you name it. And then also, is it paid versus organic? Then we need to think about building it for programmatic advertising because nothing works in isolation and needs to be part of a bigger campaign. And then lastly, it has to be built with an idea in mind within those parameters of that video time frame. Because if it focuses on the idea, it's going to be strong and it'll resonate with people. And those are just a few of the guidelines that we have for shorter length videos. So my bigger boat is going out to the king, LeBron James, on his uh, I Promise School, uh, where he's offering free tuition, free uniforms, uh, free bicycle and helmet, free transportation within two miles, free breakfast, lunch, and snacks, a food pantry for the families, GEDs and job placement services for parents, and guaranteed tuition to the University of Akron for every student who graduates. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's huge. Just a great guy. All That's around incredible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was, Hallie and I were just in Akron, and we saw it. It's beautiful, man. Yeah. It's cool. No, I mean, it really kind of uh, speaks to the legacy of LeBron. It kind of pays homage to uh, the legacy of someone like Muhammad Ali, you know? Oh, yeah. My Bigger Boat goes out to Carlos Salaf, who is debuting his beautiful custom coach build this weekend at Pebble Beach and you know obviously he's a friend of the show Um, his wife Jennifer who works here and as you may have noticed is not on this episode um, is actually and he doesn't know this yet but she's coming out to surprise him 
right now and she will be in Pebble Beach today. So we just are thinking of Carlos and we know that the presentation of his incredible um, kind of labor of love is going to go so well. You can learn more about him at salif.com. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to Kip Lee, who leads innovation and design as manager director at University Hospitals Ventures. Hallie and I first met Kip back in 2013 when we curated TEDx Klee Bonfire Night. Most recently, serves on the editorial staff of Design Issues, a leading academic journal of design history, theory, and criticism. I just received the latest issue and have been enjoying the breadth and depth of the content, all focused on design. Congratulations to Kip on his continued success in the world of human-centered design and user experience. You can learn more at you can learn more about design issues at mitpressjournals.org. This episode of My Bigger Boat goes to HBO Hard Knocks for featuring the Cleveland Browns. This has allowed me to experience my favorite NFL team in a brand new way. So go Browns! My Bigger Boat this episode, the fact that we were talking about content that people really are looking to consume and quality content, I am going to give, in a sense, two boats. A boat and a tugboat, maybe. <laughs> I guess it, the the bigger boat would be for Lin-Manuel Miranda and the cast of the local touring company of Hamilton. I had the opportunity to see it last weekend, and I actually was somebody who went into it cold. I had never heard the music. I really didn't see any of the visuals, which was is obviously a great way to experience a piece of, of theater. And I'm really glad that that is the opportunity that I was given to to experience a really incredible production and it you know I I know it's cliche because everybody's seeing it but it really did inspire me and it was beyond anything I could have imagined so again as we were just saying quality content that everybody wants to consume and it, it that's truly was evident in the fact that when Playhouse Square announced last summer that it would be coming to Cleveland for not for more than its typical three week run that shows have in Cleveland and and I should mention Cleveland Playhouse Square being you know one of the premier theater districts outside of New York City we are a city where a lot of touring companies begin um, we are a very well respected theater district so therefore my other bigger boat and that I like I said perhaps the tugboat this episode would go to the staff and crew of Cleveland Playhouse. I'm sure the past six weeks, as the show begins its final three days here in Cleveland, have been, uh, the past year really, but culminating in the past six weeks, have probably been uh, really, truly a labor of love when I was there and just seeing the masses and masses of people. And obviously with this particular production, it's masses of people that don't typically come to Playhouse Square. So it, it was the organization and the... Uh, efforts that they have to put on day in and day out for the past month and a half, um, including you know two days a uh, two days on Saturdays, Sundays, and Wednesdays is, was really something to see. So, to both the creator, the cast, and as well as those who helped present Hamilton, that is my bigger boat. This episode of Open Swim is in support of our friends at 12 Literary Arts, an intergenerational teaching, learning, and professional development incubator for poets, writers, and performance artists who seek a safe space to write. Thank you to Daniel Gray Contar for fostering the next generation of prolific writers who are going to be creating content that we all want to engage with. Learn more at 12arts.org. 
Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marsha Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.